Look carefully at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Eve eats first. But God, in verse 9, comes looking for Adam. God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Adam's sin is God's primary focus. Eve's sin, to be sure, but Adam's sin draws God's primary focus here in this chapter and throughout the rest of the Bible. Why? Because Eve acted only for herself. Adam acted on behalf of others. You may or may not remember, but a few months ago, before we took a break from our series in Genesis, we saw that God entered into what is called the covenant of works with the human race. You're not going to find that phrase in the Bible, but the idea is very much uh, a biblical idea. The terms of relationship that God initiated with the human race prior to the fall were works-based. The covenant, the terms of relationship that God initiated with the human race before the fall was works-based. There was grace at play, to be sure, in the garden. Before the fall, God gave humans more than we deserved, more than we merited, more than we were owed, strictly speaking. And that's the definition of grace. So when we say that there was a covenant of works established with mankind at creation, we're not saying that there was no grace at work whatsoever. But what we're saying is that the stability of the human race's relationship to God was predicated on our performance, our works. And Adam was appointed as a representative to act on behalf of the human race, on behalf of the rest of mankind. God would deal with the rest of the human race on the basis of Adam's merit or demerit, depending on whether he obeyed or disobeyed. We see either explicitly stated or alluded to, we see this idea either explicitly stated or alluded to, in four sections of Scripture. And we'll look at each section tonight and gain increasing clarity about this idea of Adam acting as representative of the rest of mankind. Let's begin with the first section of Scripture, pre-fall. God says lots of things to Adam and Eve together. For example, look back at Genesis chapter 1, 27-30. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, implicitly again to them, 
Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. So what we see is that the Bible does not ignore Eve. The Bible does not downplay Eve's value or dignity. We saw a number of weeks ago that God created Eve by a direct action. Even though she came from man's rib, man did absolutely nothing to create Eve. All he did was fall into a deep sleep that the Lord put him in. And later he opened his eyes and there was Eve. Man did literally nothing to create Eve. And so Adam was formed by a direct action of God. Eve was formed by a direct action of God. Likewise, we read in the New Testament that Christian women are co-heirs with their husbands in the grace of life. That there is not a privileged state uh, before God to being a man. God deals with women as He deals with men. He speaks to them. He communes with them. He reconciles them to Himself. He adopts them as His children the same way that He does to men. And so, the focus on Adam's sin can't be just dismissed by a reading of Scripture as if it was an ancient text uh, unduly focused on men as if this is a man's world and women have no place in it and so on and so forth the way that you might see that kind of thing truly present in other documents at various times and in various places. Women are valued even from the very beginning of Genesis in the pages of Scripture. Men and women alike are created by a direct action of God. They walk with God in the garden. God speaks to them. After the fall, God reconciles them just as He reconciles men uh, to Himself. And so you you can't dismiss God's focus on Adam's sin as just a a diminution or a a diminishing of the importance of women or the value of women or the significance of women and their actions. That's just, that reading just doesn't fit with Scripture. What we do see though in Scripture is that the way the command is stated in Genesis 2, 15 and 17, where we read of the explicit commandment not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the way that that command is stated, the man's obedience is implied to be particularly important. You look at Genesis chapter 2, 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. We read that God gave this commandment to man before He created Eve. It's in the verses immediately following that that God creates Eve. So He gave that commandment to man before He created Eve. He didn't wait until Eve was created so that she could hear it too. He commanded the man and then he formed Eve. And he created Eve to be Adam's helper. That's in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. I will make him a helper fit for him. So what you see is that Adam 
has primary responsibility, uh, even though uh, Adam and Eve are given the creation mandate, which is what we read from Genesis 1, they're given that together. Adam has primary responsibility in fulfilling that. Eve is his helper. Likewise, it is consistent with that idea and the way that Adam and Eve's relationship is structured, where he's the leader and she's the helper. It's consistent with those things that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 to say that Adam was primarily responsible to make sure that he did not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't right for Eve to eat of it either, but there's a particular importance attached to Adam's obedience in this matter. So it's not explicitly stated in Scripture yet. But even pre-fall, we begin to see foreshadowed the particular significance of Adam's sin as contrasted with Eve's sin. So let's look now at the second of the four sections of Scripture that we'll deal with tonight. Let's look at the immediate post-fall section of Scripture, after the fall. As I mentioned a few moments ago, God called to the man in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 9. Where are you? As the leader of his family, God is coming to deal with Adam about this thing that has happened in Adam's family. Remember, Eve is a helper. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. And so though they are both responsible for their own sin, Adam is responsible in a particular way for his sin and for the sins of his family. But not only that, as the leader of the first family, and at this time the only family on earth, Adam is also the de facto leader of the human race. Because think about it, any kids that come into Adam and Eve's union are also to be led by Adam. The son does not rule over the father, but the father over the son. And so Adam is at this point not only the leader of his family, but because his family is the whole human race, he's also the leader of the whole human race. And so God is calling not only to Adam as a singular man, but Adam as a representative, as a leader, the spokesman, the representative, the one responsible for, ultimately, the whole human race at this point in time. So, the idea is becoming a little bit clearer here, though it's still not explicitly stated. Look at also Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17. God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. So, We have thorns and thistles because of Adam. Right? So again, you see that Adam's sin has cosmic dimensions. Adam's sin affects uh, even the earth. the, The very fabric of creation is affected by Adam's sin. So in the immediate post-fall context, we're seeing more and more the significance of Adam's sin contrasted with Eve's. But it's still not explicitly stated that Adam, in the fall, acted as a representative of others. However, let's look 
now at another section of Scripture further afield. Turn with me to a later Old Testament passage written long after the fall. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 7. The ESV says, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. The King James Version says, Like men, they transgressed the covenant. In this context, here in Hosea, God is dealing with His people's sin. And here, the language of covenant is explicitly used. And the Hebrew word can mean either Adam or man, as the ESV footnote on Genesis 1.26 says. If you have an ESV, you can flip back to Genesis 1.26 and look at the footnote. There's a word that can be translated either as Adam or as man. So this is why the King James Version translates it as, like men, they transgress the covenant. And the ESV translates it as, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. I think that the context favors the latter usage, like Adam, because otherwise the phrase means something like this, like men, men transgress the covenant, which you could say, well, they're acting in accordance with their nature, like men do, like is the nature of men, they transgress the covenant. So it's intelligible, but I think that something richer is conveyed when we read it as like Adam these men also transgressed the covenant. From my perspective, that would make Hosea 6-7 into a richer statement, highlighting the similarity between later mankind and their first father, and hinting at the causality of why these later men in Hosea's day transgressed the covenant. It's because they are like their first father, Adam. So to me, the context... Uh, would resolve that ambiguity and I would lean towards the ESV translation of this like Adam they transgress the covenant however either way either way the statement in Hosea 6-7 at least indicates that all men are in a covenantal relationship with God because if it is the nature of men generally if we read it as like men they transgress the covenant then what that indicates is that it is the nature of men to transgress the covenant. How can it be in the nature of men to transgress the covenant if there is no covenant to transgress? You understand what I'm saying? If it is common to men, whether Philistines or Amalekites or Israelites or whoever, to transgress the covenant, it implies that there is a covenant to be transgressed and that God's people in this Situation in this context in Hosea 6-7 are no different. So regardless of how we navigate that exact translation issue, Hosea 6-7 teaches us that all men are in a covenantal relationship with God and that it is, at least at present in Hosea's day, men's nature to transgress that covenant. Because God entered into a relationship with Adam in the first place, a covenantal relationship with Adam in the first place, and appointed Adam as a representative of the rest of mankind, all men really are in a covenantal relationship with God. And all men since Adam, since Adam fell into sin, all men fell with him. 
And so we are guilty because of Adam's sin and we are corrupt, which is why God can say so much later, like all men do, or like Adam did, my people have transgressed the covenant. All people are in a covenantal relationship with God. And Hosea 6-7 teaches us that all people, uh, and we know outside of Christ, all people outside of Christ are in a broken covenantal relationship with God. And this leads us very naturally to our next section of Scripture, the New Testament writings. In the New Testament, we see explicitly what is implied throughout the Old Testament as an explanation for the corruption and guilt of mankind before God. They are fallen in Adam. Two passages are particularly relevant. There's Romans 5, verses 12 to 21, and 1 Corinthians 15, 22, and also 45 to 49, but we won't spend much time looking at 45 to 49 tonight. Let's look at Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin was indeed, indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, one of the unmistakable emphases of the passage that I just read for you in Revelation chapter 5 or pardon me, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, is the idea of representation or the idea of substitution or what theologians have called imputation. These are all roughly synonymous terms as we think about uh, these concepts as they pertain to Adam and Christ. What we see in this passage clearly taught is that Adam acted as a representative for all of mankind. Adam acted as a substitute for all of mankind, in the place of all of mankind. And Adam's sin was imputed to all of mankind. These are, we could distinguish these if we work real hard, but they're roughly synonymous for our purposes 
tonight. What you see is that, look at verse 18, for example. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men. As one man's disobedience, verse 19, the many were made sinners. The ju- verse 16, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 15, if many died through one man's trespass. Verse 12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And we know that the one man who they're speaking about is Adam because of the end of verse 14. Those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Makes it explicit that when it talks about the one man's trespass, it's talking about Adam's trespass. So again, you don't see Eve in this passage. It doesn't say... It doesn't say, well, just as Eve sinned in the first place, you know, now Christ has come and by one act of righteousness brought justification. It focuses in again on Adam, on Adam, on Adam. And again, we can't just dismiss that as just saying the Bible treats a woman's actions as if they don't matter or as if they're insignificant or something like that because it's a man's world. Again, we can't just dismiss it out of hand like that. What we see when we look at the biblical theology of this is that God appointed Adam not only as a leader of his family, ultimately responsible to lead and shepherd and care for his wife and all of their subsequent children, to lead in the fulfillment of the creation mandate and so on and so forth, but that God put Adam not only at the head of mankind in that sense, as the leader, but God put Adam... As the, at the head of mankind in the sense of being a representative. In the sense of being a substitute, as it were, to act in the place of another. If I can't go somewhere, I could send my lawyer to go somewhere and carry out business for me. And they're acting as a substitute. And what they do affects me. And in that same manner, Adam was acting as a substitute in the garden. I wasn't there, but he was acting as my substitute. And what he did affects me. This is what is the clear teaching of Scripture on this point. Adam's sin wasn't just this unfortunate thing that happened to him a long time ago. Uh, It wasn't just this one guy sinned a long time ago and there's this interesting story in Genesis 3 about this one guy sinning. What the rest of the Bible unfolds is that that one sin was carried out as a representative, as a substitute. And so his sin is imputed to all of those whom he represents. If I send my attorney to go and do some business for me, if they act in whatever way they act, it legally binds me, for better or for worse. If they fail to catch something in the documentation that perhaps they should have caught and they sign it anyway with power of attorney, it still affects me. And so on and so forth. What you, what you see is that Adam's sin, acting as a representative, acting as a substitute, affects the rest of mankind. His actions are counted as if they were our actions. His sin was our sin. That's what verse 12 of Romans 5 says. Death spread to all men because all sinned. 
Well, how did all sin? Implicitly in the context, all sinned in him. All sinned in Adam. When Adam sinned, I sinned. When Adam sinned, you sinned. When Adam sinned, you sinned. When Adam sinned, the whole human race sinned. Because he was acting as a representative, as a substitute. And so his sin is imputed to us, credited to us. It's like he incurred a debt acting as an attorney for us, which we are now legally responsible for. This is what happened when Adam sinned in the garden. This is why, though we read about so many sins in Scripture, so many sins in Scripture, just read through the Old Testament and you are going to see so many sins. But this is why Adam's sin in the biblical storyline gets more prominence than any other sin. Think about it. David slept with another man's wife and then killed her husband to cover it up. Right? You read, you read some horrific stuff at the end of Judges. Like awful. Like one of, in my opinion, the most stomach-turning chapter in the whole Bible. Where, where men rape a woman all night long and then leave her dead on the doorstep. It's awful. It's just, it's horrendous. You read about some terrible, terrible sins in Scripture. Adam ate a piece of fruit that God had forbidden him to eat. All things being equal, we wouldn't look at that as being the worst sin that just deserves exaltation above all other sins as the most heinous act in the Old Testament. All things being equal, we wouldn't think that. But what we see in Scripture is that all things are not equal. And Adam was acting in a capacity that David did not act in. And Adam was acting in a capacity that the wicked men at the end of Judges were not acting in. Adam was acting in a capacity of a representative, as a substitute, as one whose actions would be imputed to the rest of the human race. And so Adam's sin has greater consequence than any other sin in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, frankly. And so what we see is that the biblical storyline is not that the fall happens over and over and over and over and over. As if Adam has this choice to make. Is he going to be a good man or a bad man? And he decides to be a bad man. And then Cain and Abel have a choice to make. Are they going to be good men or are they going to be bad men? And Cain chooses to be a bad man and Abel chooses to be a good man. You know, and is, is Abraham going to be a good man or a bad man? Well, he makes some mistakes, but then in the end he chooses to be a good man. This is the way that people sometimes try to represent the storyline of Scripture, that you have all of these people who come to this point in their life where they have to decide whether they're going to taste the forbidden fruit or not. And what will they do in that moment? Will they obey God or will they be like Adam? Don't be like Adam. Don't eat that fruit. Be unlike Adam and resist. Don't eat that fruit. Don't fall. Right? This is the way that sometimes the biblical storyline is portrayed. But that is inaccurate. The biblical storyline is that Adam fell into sin 
He chose to sin. He chose to rebel against God's decree. He chose to break the terms of relationship or the covenant that God had established with him. And when Adam sinned, the whole human race fell in him. In him. This is why we read in 1 Corinthians 15.22, In Adam all die. This is covenantal language, being in Adam. In Adam all die, because in Adam all sinned. In Adam all are guilty. In Adam all are corrupt. This is the way that we actually should understand the biblical storyline. Both Cain and Abel were corrupt. Abraham was corrupt. David was corrupt. The men at the end of Judges are corrupt. This is the biblical storyline. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the biblical message. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. This is the biblical storyline. And it's all because of Adam's sin. When Adam acted in the garden, he broke the covenant of works. He, as the mediator of the covenant of works, acting as a representative, acting as a surety, acting as a substitute, acting, as it were, with power of attorney, sinned. And in Him, we all sinned. In Him, we all became guilty. In Him, we all became corrupt. God imputed His sin to us. This is what happened in Genesis 3, verses 1 to 6. Which is why, even though I know some of this is review, I wanted to hit this again before we move on from Genesis 3. Because this is so fundamental to understanding the rest of the biblical storyline. When we read Genesis 3, we're not just reading about just another sin in a list of sins, a litany of sins throughout the Old Testament. God's people do this bad thing, then God's people do this bad thing, and then the Philistines do this bad thing, and the Amalekites do this bad thing. This is not just one more episode in a long litany of sins. This is the fundamental defining sin of the human race that affected and still affects every generation, every person born naturally uh, by pure human lineage from Adam all the way until today. This is a sin unlike any other sin and I want to drive that point home. Adam was acting in a public capacity, not a private capacity. The sin that he committed wasn't just sin that affected himself. And the public capacity in which he acted wasn't that it just affected Eve, his wife. The way that if I have a bad attitude, it affects my wife. But it doesn't affect generations and generations. Hence, uh, Adam acted in a way that affected the entire human race. He acted as a public person who had been appointed a representative, a surety, a substitute for the whole human race. And so everyone uh, who was uh, to be born after him would be born in Adam, guilty and corrupt. This is the plain teaching of Scripture. But what we see from Romans 5, verses 
uh, 12 to 21 is that there is another who acted in a public capacity. There is another who acted as a representative. There is another who acted as a substitute. There is another who acted with power of attorney, as it were. There is another who acted in such a way that his actions would be imputed to those whom he represents, namely Christ Jesus. We read in Romans 5 that though many died through one man's trespass, the grace of God, the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded for many. The free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Adam. However, the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That's 5.17. One trespass That's Adam's led to condemnation for all men. One act of righteousness, that's Christ's, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, verse 19, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Christ Jesus also acted as a representative, as a substitute, as a surety with power of attorney in such a way that his actions would be imputed to all whom he represents. What we see in uh, chapter, Romans chapter 5 and verse 14 is that Adam was a type of the one to come. That's what the scripture says. And so the logic there is that in the same capacity that Adam acted, so Christ acted in the same capacity. Adam acted for all whom he represents, And so Christ acted for all whom he represents. And just as Adam's actions affected all those whom he represents, so Christ's actions affect all whom he represents. This is the glory of the gospel. That when we come to understand the fall properly, what we have to see is that all hope was lost in Adam. There is no hope to be found in Adam. Because we're already born. What, what we realize is that we're actually born guilty and corrupt. That because of Adam, we have incurred a judicial penalty against ourselves and our nature has been corrupted. And so actually from the day we are conceived we are in big trouble. There is no hope to be found in Adam. How can those who are guilty and corrupt face judgment at the hands of a holy God? All hope is lost. We can't pretend that we have a neutral nature. We can't pretend that we are in the same state as Adam was before the fall and that here we are just going through life And the big decision we got to make is whether to be a good person or whether to be a bad person. We can't pretend that that's the case because this scripture tells us plainly otherwise. You are outside of Christ, you are a bad person. Outside of Christ, 
the decision you've got to make is not whether you're going to be a good person or whether you're going to be a bad person. But what are you going to do about the fact that you are a bad person and you're in a broken covenantal relationship with God? That the terms of the relationship with God upon which you might have been accepted have already been broken. It's like being born into a family uh, whose debt is passed down from generation to generation. And, And from the time that you come to have any awareness, you realize you are never going to be able to get out of this debt. There is literally no possible way because of what you have been born into. There is actually no possible way to dig yourself out of this debt. You will never own anything. You will never buy a car. You will never buy a house. All your wages will be garnished forever. You will always be in debt. You can never dig yourself out. This is what it's like to realize that we are in Adam. There is actually no way out. There is no possible way out by our works. There is nothing we can do to dig ourselves out of that debt, as it were. There is nothing that we can do to fix that bad situation. But this is the glory of the gospel. That Christ has done something to dig us out of that bad situation that we never could have done for ourselves. That Christ acted in a public capacity. That Christ acted in a representative capacity. In a substitutionary capacity. With power of attorney. Such that His actions affect us. Christ acted in such a way that His actions would be imputed to us. And so, after we come to understand the bad news that we are that in Adam all die, we come to see the good news that in Christ all shall be made alive. Also, 1 Corinthians 15.22. And again, covenantal language. Those who are in Adam have the actions of Adam imputed to them. Those who are in Christ have the actions, uh, the merits, and, the, and uh, there, well, there are no demerits, the merits of Christ. In Adam, we have the demerits of Adam applied to us, imputed to us. In Christ, we have the merits of Christ imputed to us. This is the good news, that though in Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive. That Christ Jesus came, under, born under the law. That's what Galatians 4.4 4 tells us. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Born... Then, under the terms of the covenant of works. Born with an obligation to keep the covenant of works. And not in a private capacity, but in order to redeem those who are under the law. That's what Galatians 4.4 tells us. He was born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. He was born under the covenant of works, to redeem those who are under the covenant of works in order that we might receive adoption as sons. So what did Christ do? Christ lived a life of obedience to God the Father. He was obedient to the moral law of God. He loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and he loved his neighbor as himself. He had no other gods before God. He made no images. He of created things 
to worship. He didn't skew the picture of the real God in favor of a God fashioned after His own desire. He didn't misuse God's name or fail to uphold the respect and the honor due God's name. Jesus kept the Sabbath day. Jesus honored His father and His mother. Jesus did not murder, neither externally nor internally in His heart. He did not hate someone in a sinful manner. Jesus did not commit adultery, again, either externally or even lusting after a woman in His heart. Jesus did not steal. Jesus did not bear false witness. Jesus did not covet. Jesus kept the moral law of God. And Jesus kept the positive law that He was born under. He was a good Jew. He was circumcised on the eighth day and He lived under the positive law that He was under in order to redeem those who are under that same positive law. In order to redeem them from the sins, the breaches of that positive law that they had committed. And so Jesus came and kept the law for us. Jews and Gentiles alike, whoever believes in Him will find that Christ's law-keeping is sufficient as a substitute for their own law-breaking. And Jesus, and so receiving Jesus' righteousness, God can look at us and say, justly, I consider John righteous because he's clothed in the righteousness of Christ, his surety, his substitute, his representative, the mediator of the covenant that he is now in. But what about the judicial penalty? Does God just waive that? No. The cross. This is what happened at the cross. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The punishment that covenant breakers deserve was meted out to Christ Jesus on the cross. So not only are we clothed in the righteousness of Christ as if we had kept the terms of the covenant of works, but Christ Jesus was punished on the cross as if He had broken the terms of the covenant of works. This is what happened when He acted as our representative, as our substitute. This is what happened on the cross. And so both the precepts of the law were kept for us by Jesus Christ, and the penalty for the breach of the law was fulfilled on our behalf by Jesus Christ. So that, as the Scripture says, just as He was raised from the dead, so also we will be raised from the dead. There is actually no claim of death that death can make upon those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, covenantal language. In Christ Jesus. We often talk about the covenant that Christ mediates as being the covenant of grace. Again, you won't find that phrase in the Scripture, but it's a biblical idea. The, the biblical language for the covenant of grace is the new covenant. The first covenant had been broken, and so there's a need for the new covenant. A new covenant. This is the covenant of grace. We call it the covenant of grace because now God's relationship to us who have trusted in Christ Jesus, is no longer predicated upon our works the way that the covenant of works was predicated upon works. God's relationship to those who are in Christ Jesus, covenantally represented by Christ Jesus, 
is predicated upon grace. God's grace has brought us into that covenant. God's grace keeps us in that covenant. God's grace holds us fast in that covenant. God's grace unfolds to us all the benefits of that covenant. To us, it is grace, grace, grace. But what you see uh, in the unfolding storyline of Scripture is that Christ Jesus acted in the same capacity as Adam, namely as a representative of mankind. And so what we see when we look at the Scripture is that Adam in the fall acted as a representative of others. And Christ Jesus in redemption does too. Glory be to God for that. So Eve sinned to be sure. And Adam sinned to be sure. But when Adam sinned, the human race fell. And this is why the emphasis, not only in Genesis 3, but throughout the rest of Scripture, the unfolding storyline of Scripture, this is why the emphasis falls not on Eve's sin, but on Adam's sin. Adam, in the fall, acted as a representative of others. But thanks be to God, Christ in redemption does too.